We are continuing our series, Do Be a Pharisee. Last week we talked about pride and how uh, not pride isn't necessarily a bad thing all the time, but when it comes to spiritual pride, when we are so uh, excited about where we are, but we elevate ourselves and we have this tendency to look down on everybody else that is not where we are at and we think that we are better than, this is the kind of thing that God actually says he hates. He hates when we elevate ourselves above others and look down on others who aren't where we're at as if they are less than. So I encourage you to go back. This is going to be a, this is a good, exciting series. Yeah, it's kind of hard-hitting, and it looks like it's going to be a downer, but it's really not. I'm really trying to keep it. <laughs> we're, we're good. Um, I encourage you to go back. If you missed last week, watch it. Uh, it was a good one. Um, but this week, we're talking about exclusivity. And it's interesting that we had Youthquake and we did that little reflection because for a, kind of to set the stage of what exclusivity is, universities and colleges are the best example for this. Uh, if I, say, if I th- ask you to throw out the name of an Ivy League school, and I know Ivy League is kind of an American thing. I don't know if we have an equivalent in Canada. But if I say Ivy League, everyone online, throw it on the comment section. What do you think of when I say Ivy League? Anybody? Harvard, Queens, not masters. Um, think of Yale. If we go across the ocean, we think of Oxford. We think of these high, elevated, great universities. And they have this status of, if you have a Harvard degree, you are automatically uh, cut above the rest because it is such a prestigious school. But the interesting thing is, in order for a school like that to maintain its prestige, it has to keep the entrance exam standard quite high. Why? Because they want to pump out only the very best grads, and in order to ensure they only get the very best grads, they only let the very best students come in. And year after year, the entrance application, the expectation to get in gets just a little bit higher. And the interesting thing is the guys that have a Harvard degree from 10 years ago, if they were apply right now, they actually couldn't get back in. Because what was acceptable 10 years ago is not acceptable now. And it is, and in order for other schools to get there, they, they have to bump up the expectation. They have to bump up the bar. And that high bar is designed to keep the riffraff out to keep those who are less than what the college wants to be about. They want to keep that out so that they can only be best. Now, in that kind of scenario, it's unfortunate, but you want, we understand why colleges do that. We understand why they want to be mildly exclusive because they want to maintain that pedigree. And there's certain areas in life where exclusivity is okay. For example, Mother's Day. If you do anything other than celebrate your mom today, you're doing Mother's Day wrong. Now, in saying that, we should be celebrating our moms every day of the year. If you are waiting to do it once a year, again, you're doing it wrong. You should celebrate your mom and thank her and be gracious and grateful for her day in and day out because your mom is awesome and she does so much <clears throat> but if you, especially today today we should go the extra mile to make our moms feel special feel loved feel appreciated 
this day should be exclusive, exclusive for our moms. We should eat all the food mom wants to eat. We should do all the things mom wants to do. And we're going to do it with smiles on our faces because we are not complaining because today is her day. And for everyone who missed that, here's your wake-up call. If you didn't have anything planned, stick around for potluck. I just saved your butt. Okay. Um, the problem is that exclusivity is okay in some realms, but it starts to become a bit of a problem when it starts creeping into other. And one of the areas that exclusivity is not welcome is at the church. Because what happens is, and, and it happens from well-meaning motives, and I will be the first to admit that I am guilty of this at times. We as leadership so desperately want to see you as the congregation and as the members grow. And so we set a really high bar that we want to see you reach to as you grow in your spiritual growth and your development comes along. And so we use verses like Luke 9.23, which should be familiar to most of you. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. This is the verse that Not a Fan was based off of. So, and I know most of you have been through Not a Fan. Great book. If you've never read it, highly recommend that you check it out. But Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you've got to give up everything. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Boom. Bar set. You've got to deny yourself. Give up. <clears throat> and it's great for those that can attain the bar. It's great for those that can live up to that standard. But the problem is, is that we start weeding out those that can't. And it's like, well, this is the standard, and we, we, we want everyone to be there, and if you can't, then, well, it kind of comes back to this pride thing. We start to look down on those who aren't quite meeting the standard. I'm not talking about we as the leadership. I mean, this is something that anybody does. And this is the thing that the Pharisees were getting caught up in. This is the thing that the Pharisees were having trouble with. And it says, Jesus says this about them in Matthew 23. Oop. He says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of kingdom, the heaven, in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. We've set the bar so high, Boom. Nobody is welcome unless they meet the standard with which we are asking of them. <laughs> and like I said, this, is, this is, comes from well-meaning heart, and this is not just church. I think we do this as parents. Because we don't want our kids, we don't want our congregation to settle. We don't want you to have a mediocre life. We don't want you to have a mediocre faith. We don't want you to... But the problem is, is that when we drive a high standard so hard and we come down on those who aren't meeting the standard, all of a sudden we are not, we are sacrificing mediocrity and we're becoming exclusive. And if you don't, you don't walk this way, you don't talk this way, you don't give this much, you don't pray this much, you don't show up for these things, well maybe, maybe this isn't where you belong. And it's called thinning the herd. And the problem is, 
is Jesus wasn't about thinning the herd. Jesus is actually about growing the, th- the herd. He actually wants to expand the kingdom, and we get caught up. We, well, we just want to put forth the absolute best church we can, so we set this high standard, we ask everyone to meet it, and we want everyone, and so and we want our kids to be the absolute best they can, and we want them to be, we become the, the fire that purges off everything that's not acceptable. And then people get discouraged, and people leave, and Believe it or not, I was reading a couple pastors say that they would rather have a church that was half full, full of people that were fully committed, than a church that was full of people that were only half committed. And that is a terrible mindset. That is actually the exact opposite of everything Jesus stood for. And so to this morning, we're going to look at some scripture, uh, and I'm going to compare uh, two very prominent figures in scripture, and one of them isn't actually a Pharisee. You think in a series called Don't Be a Pharisee, I'm going to compare Jesus to Pharisees, and I'm not. I'm going to compare Jesus' own cousin to him. So it's John the Baptist versus Jesus. So um, and these two, even though they were on mission together, they were, all, they were both purposed together, they were both headed in the same direction, they could not have been any more different. So look at John the Baptist. Matthew 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven of coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them, you brood of snakes. He exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So John is your prototypical set-the-bar-high kind of preacher. A, he's not in the cities. He's out in the wilderness. So that pretty much eliminates all the window shoppers. I have to go find him. I'm not going, mm, no, pass. And all those that come out there, what does he say? Oh, the kingdom is open to all. No, no. He, he's like, no, you're all going to hell unless you repent. That is the ultimate herd-thinning start to any message. The Pharisees show up with his ear, a bunch of snakes. Remember last week I said if I came out here and called you all a bunch of Pharisees, you'd all be offended? I bet you if I called you all a bunch of snakes, it'd probably have the same effect. There's one of those insults that has not changed. You call someone a snake, everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. Paul is, or Paul, John is ruthless. He is... He has a high standard of everyone who comes to follow him, everyone who comes to listen to him. There's the bar. If you don't meet it, sucks to be you. 
And if you want to come listen to me, you're going to have to travel through desert and everything to come find me. I'm not coming to you. He is, <laughs> it is a pretty exclusive group that comes to find John. And the only time that there's someone who is outside this group comes is because they're coming to see if they need to throw him in jail. And he calls them out for it. So you take John, who is so, <laughs> oh man, he is like fire and brimstone. Like he is, that is the equivalent of John here nowadays. And some people are like, we need more of that. Mm, I don't know. So there's John. On the flip side, here's Jesus. This is what it says about Jesus. The disciples of John the Baptist told John everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Interesting statement. Because if you rewind the clock back to the Christmas story, while John was still in his mom's womb, and Mary shows up while she's pregnant, what does John do in the womb? He leaps for joy because he knows that his Savior and his Messiah has just arrived, and he is excited. He knows. Nobody else knew with the clarity of John that Jesus was the Messiah. But they are so radically different in the way they do things that even John himself is starting to question. Why? Because John has such a high bar, and he looks at what Jesus is doing. He's like, Jesus isn't doing the same thing I'm doing. He has no expectation. He has no bar. You know, Bill and Bob, go check him out. Make sure he's actually who we think he is. Right? That's what he says. He says, come here, my disciples. Go to him and see if he's actually the one we've been waiting for or if we need to wait for another. And this is what Jesus says. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At, oh, at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. And he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is, preached, is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Now that's Jesus is doing what he's doing, right? He's healing the blind. He's opening deaf ears. The mute are speaking. The lame are walking. But what doesn't Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say people are repenting. He doesn't say people are turning from their ways. He just says people are getting healed. People are being loved on. God, people are experiencing the power and the love and the grace. And it just doesn't seem like... There's any expectation that they have to commit themselves to God before any of that happens. One of the really interesting things as you read through the story of Luke is Jesus does all these great and amazing things before thousands upon thousands of people. But the one thing Luke doesn't record is the altar calls. He doesn't talk about people repenting. He doesn't talk about people coming and giving their life and following him. All the Actually, what Luke actually responds records more often than not is after the sermon's done they leave there's no great revival there's no and luke is the same guy who wrote acts who made sure we knew that after peter was done three thousand people were baptized luke is 
very studious. He's very concerned about the details. And that seems like a detail he would include if it was a detail to be included. See, Jesus doesn't have expectations. Jesus doesn't go off in the wilderness and ask you to come. Jesus actually moved around from city to city. He went to the people. And actually, the really interesting thing about the New Testament is that when you look at the kind of Greek the New Testament is written in, it wasn't actually the Greek that the Jews would have spoken. It's not the Greek that the scholars would have spoken. It's actually the marketplace broken Greek that everybody spoke. The New Testament authors were so concerned that this message needed to get in as many hands as possible that they even used broken, low Greek, if you would, kind of like the low German, so that everyone could understand the stories. Everyone could understand what was happening. There is no exclusivity in Jesus' message. There is no exclusiveness. There is no, it's just come and be loved on. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus never asked people to have a high standard. We just looked at one. Luke 9, 23, if you want to follow me, lay it all down. But the problem is we get so caught up in these high standard verses and we preach them and we harp on them and we park our lives and our theology on them, but then we miss the ones where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. There's no standard in that statement. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. And one of the great challenges we have as believers is we have to balance these two things. We have to balance this high standard that Jesus has of his followers, because that has not changed. Jesus still has high expectations of us. But yet, on the other hand, he has these, come to me if you're tired, because you'll find rest. And there's like, how do we we meet this? How do we we combine and, uh, Jesus, why do you do this to us? And so we look at all this and we're like, well, maybe that means we just we should have to stop having expectations. Whoa! Bump the brakes there, everybody. Let's not jump to that conclusion. Because there's got to be a middle ground. And I want to close with this. We're going to look at Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, a passage that most of us have heard many, many times. If you haven't heard it, well, you're going to see why this would be a popular passage for people who want to have a high standard for their church. Write this letter to the angel in the... Uh, to the bleh, okay, try that again. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and the anointment, an ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. 
I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I sat victorious, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now we often come to this story and we use it as a big old beat the drum. Okay, everybody stop being lukewarm. Let's turn up the temperature a little bit and get going. Right? That, that has been the way that story has always been told. And what we miss is, is Jesus setting a high standard? Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is coming as a the God of the universe and saying, okay, guys, it is time to open your eyes. It's time to stop fooling yourself. Stop lying to yourself and get in the game. It is time to move from lukewarm to hot. And if you don't, when judgment comes, I am going to spit you out. But what we often miss is that Jesus has this opportunity to come as the loving Father and as the loving Messiah and Encourage them that it's not too late. It's not too late to turn around. He is not coming with a hammer. He is coming with arms open as the father and the prodigal son saying, come. There's still an opportunity to turn things around. There's still an opportunity because I am still the one who is victorious. I will still come and sit with you. You will find victory in me. You will find strength in me. You will find all that you need in me. You who are heavy burdened, come and find rest in me. But keep striving to get better. And so Jesus keeps the bar where it is, but he meets the people where they're at, and he hold, wraps his arms around them and says, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are welcomed here, you are still my children, you're still... He's not taking away their salvation, he's not taking away their church, he's not doing any of that stuff. He said, you still have a part in this church. Keep going. Well, it's the old cliche. God loves you where you're at but he loves you too much to leave you where you're at. God loves you where you're at. Come to me who are heavy burdened and find rest. But after you have found your rest and after you have found your easy yoke and your light burden, the other one is still true. Deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow me. Continue to strive to be better. And so we take these two things and we remind ourselves that it doesn't matter where you are at in your walk. It doesn't matter where anybody, because exclusivity is the pharisaical, I'm great, I'm doing awesome, I'm knocking it out of the park, and everybody needs to be like me. And if you're not like me, you can't come to my church, you can't be a part of what I'm doing, you can't, you can't, you can't, because you're not where I'm at. Well, problem with that is you weren't always there. You had to grow to get there, and we need to be patient with those who are still on the growth path as they get to where we are. But in the same breath, you need to not ever stop growing. Exclusivity says, let's just thin out everybody so that we can be the very best that we can be, 
And Jesus is actually here. My arms are wide open. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're struggling. It doesn't matter if you're new. It doesn't matter if you have questions. It doesn't, none of it matters. You're welcome here. You're part of the family. And let's get better together. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Father God, I... I thank you, God, that your word is big and beautiful and <laughs> we can spend our whole lives struggling to understand it because from our perspective, Matthew 18 and Luke 9 seem to be on opposite end of the spectrum, yet for you, Jesus, they are perfectly aligned with one another. Both are true and both are applicable to us where we are. And so, God, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us to continue to grow on the path that you have called us to grow on, to continue to do the things you've asked us to do, to step into the purpose and the mission that you have set aside for us, that we would continually allow your word to refine us. But along the way, as Paul said, we would bear the burdens of those who aren't where we're at. That along the way, we would have our arms open and encourage those who are struggling or new or maybe don't know you, you at all. Because in your kingdom, all are welcome, all are loved, all can find peace, all can find forgiveness, all can find everything they need in you. Jesus, I thank you that we're not the judge as we're not qualified to do it. But you are. And your Holy Spirit works in great and marvelous ways that maybe we don't always see. And so God, may our faith in you, may our trust in you continually grow. May you challenge us to always grow, but also to always come along and mentor those who need to be mentored, encourage those who need to be encouraged, that this would be, <laughs> that this would be a lighthouse where the hurting find bandages to nurse their wounds, where the lost are found. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, God, that you challenge us daily. Help us to grow in all the ways that you have called us to grow. Give your praise and thanks in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as you get ready to sing. Um, I had one thing I wanted you to think of. Last week I said, if you want to know if there's pride sneaking in, think of a, if you have a list of people that you're like, thank goodness I'm not like them. Well, for exclusivity... It looks something like this. It's back to the Matthew 23. Is there people that we have been intentionally or maybe unintentionally shutting the door on? Saying that these people don't align with us, they don't agree with us, and so maybe they just need to stay out. Because nothing could be farther from the heart of God. God doesn't close doors, he actually kicks them open. And so who in our life needs us to extend grace instead of slamming the door on.